This is the EFCA Theology Podcast, made to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. Historically, the EFCA has made an intentional decision not to divide over secondary issues. We often refer to this deeply held value as the significance of silence. In 2015, the EFCA Theology Conference wrestled with the significance of silence as it relates to our inclusion of Calvinist, Arminian, and Lutheran understandings of the doctrine of salvation. On this episode of the podcast, we share Dr. Tom McCall's conference message on the Arminian Wesleyan understanding of salvation. Well, good afternoon, and thank you uh, for your interest in this topic, for your work here. Thanks to Greg Strand, uh, thanks to our fellow panelists, and thanks to all of you. I also want to take a moment and just express my appreciation uh, for the EFCA for two reasons. One is their willingness to engage in genuine, serious theological conversation. I'm overwhelmed that there are 400 or so pastors here who care this deeply about theology, and I just commend you for that. I'm really, really impressed by that. And secondly, let me just thank the EFCA for providing a church home to my own family. And I was wondering if I would see anyone here from that. And I have an entire row right here of pastors from Kenosha Bible Church right here in the second row. But thank you. By way of introduction, I'm going to make a couple of caveats because that's what we always do. And then I want to turn to an overview, sort of a big picture overview of a Wesleyan account of salvation. And then we'll turn our attention to some of the contested points that often become the locus of conversation, discussion, and sometimes debate. First, the caveats. First, let me just say that common ground here is both substantive and really, really important. And I say that because when we're talking about things where we may differ, Sometimes it's really easy to focus upon those things until we begin to lose sight of the, the, the really important, really big picture things that do unite us. There is a lot of common ground here. Uh, Greg, a moment ago, said that there are four different streams of, broadly speaking, of the Protestant traditions. I agree with that. I'm just going to point out that what we think of as Arminian views come out of at least two of those very explicitly, both the Reformed and the Anglican, and probably somewhat out of the other two as well. So we shouldn't be at all surprised that there's common ground and that it's significant. There's a lot of common ground with Reformed theology, which of course isn't surprising considering that Arminius was a Reformed theologian who actually died as a Reformed theologian in good standing. And I'm not surprised at all because I did a PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary where again and again and again I was reminded of the precious common ground that we hold and where again and again and again I was um, made to come to grips with the fact that many of these reformed theologians who we studied were just magnificent theologians there's also a lot of common ground with Lutheran theology not always quite as much with Luther himself although significant there too but a lot with Melanchthon with the Lutheran confessional tradition and to scholastic Lutherans, who sometimes say what I want to say, but say it a lot better. It's a little bit frustrating when they do that. 
Secondly, what I'm calling Wesleyan or Wesleyan Arminian here is really my own summary. Now, I'm giving you handouts with lots of citations, um, so you can hopefully rest assured I'm not just making stuff up. But I do want to underscore there's a lot of variety within these traditions. A lot of remonstrant theology, for instance, differs from that of Arminius, in, and it does so in some really important ways. So even the generations right after Arminius were t- making some hard left turns. Accordingly, a lot of what is known as English Arminianism has very little, if anything, to do with Arminius or Wesley, either historically or theologically. In fact, many of the same people who are criticized, for instance, by Jonathan Edwards in his massive book on original sin, are the very same opponents criticized by Wesley in his big book on original sin, which was written two years earlier. They're the same named people. They're the people Edwards calls Arminians, and they happen to be the very same people who Wesley goes after. So there's a lot of variety under this label Arminian. There's also significant movement and change within Methodist theology from the late 17th century into the early 20th, and I hate to say a lot more from the early 20th to the early 21st. So there's just a lot of variety in common ground. Now last, let me make a clarification. I'm a, I'm a Wesleyan Christian by cradle and way more importantly by conviction. And that conviction has only deepened over the years. So I, I do want that to be clear. But right now, this, this afternoon, what I'm trying to do is represent some major voices of the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. I'm not trying to make an argument or build a case. This isn't going to be a debate. Um, in fact, I don't always agree with either Wesley or Arminius at all points. And sometimes I tend to agree with the general thrust of what they're saying, but I can't agree with how they got there. But this, this afternoon, I'm trying to be broadly descriptive of this account. All right, let's jump in. And what I'll try to do is give an overview, a fairly concise overview of the big picture of a Wesleyan understanding of salvation. And this begins, for Wesleyans, traditionally, historically, it begins in the doctrine of God, specifically in the doctrine of the Trinity. Wesleyan theology is convinced both that the doctrine of the Trinity is true, they're just as convinced that it really matters. This is why Charles Wesley, in addition to the several other thousand hymns he wrote, produces several hundred hymns just on the Trinity. It matters for doctrine, for worship, for practice, for life. And so when thinking about the doctrine of God, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is omnipotent. And you can't get any more powerful than that. Yes, God rules and judges the world. Yes, the doctrine of divine sovereignty is true. But that is not the first, last, or ultimate thing that is to be said about God. Because God's sovereign rule over his creation, which, by the way, is not necessary. We didn't have to exist. God's sovereign rule over his creation is understood and celebrated as the sovereign rule of his triune nature. What this means, among other things, is that love is not, in any sense, accidental to God. It's not something that God merely chooses to have, or something that comes and goes, or something that fluctuates. It's certainly not something that's arbitrary with Him. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity means that God's holy love is essential to the being and nature of God. The perfect communion or perichoresis shared between Father, Son, and Spirit in their mutual loving and mutual glorification, think John 17 language. 
This is essential to the very being of God. God wouldn't be God without it. Because it's of the nature of God, God is necessarily and essentially triune, then it's necessary and essential to him. Thus Charles Wesley will refer in his hymns not only to love divine all loves excelling. When he does this, he's not merely talking about something that God exercises toward us or is toward us, although certainly that's true and beautiful and glorious. He's talking about something more. He's talking about who God is within God's own triune life. And then when Charles Wesley writes hymns that express in prayer this petition to God, asking God, help us know thy nature and thy name, he also refers to what he calls the omnipotence of love. So the Wesleyan understanding of the doctrine of salvation actually begins with the doctrine of God. It is also grounded in the goodness and contingency of creation. So because God is triune, because God's own life is this shared life of holy love between Father, Son, and Spirit, God doesn't need creation to be who he is. He does not need creation to be loving. He doesn't need creation to be glorified. He doesn't need you or me or our sin. Creation is not a cosmic experiment. It's not a proving ground for divine wrath. Although the doctrine of divine wrath is true, this creation is not made so that God has some place to put his wrath. Instead, creation is the overflow of God's own utter, spotless, primordial goodness. It's an expression of God's own holy love given to creatures. This is why the Wesleys and their people were convinced that any time you see a human person, no matter how pathetic or how broken or how depraved or how twisted or how warped or how ruined by sin, you know that this person was made in God's image and for the glorious purpose of knowing the triune God of holy love. Now we know that in point of fact, people are in fact depraved and twisted and warped and ruined by sin. Wesleyan theology is convinced that no one escapes sin, no part of us escapes the effects of sin. And not a single one of us escapes the consequences of sin. Thus Wesleyans don't believe in the innate goodness of humans. No, we're sinners. But Wesleyans do believe in the utter goodness of God. He is pure and holy. And this perfectly good God of trying love has not abandoned us to our filth and our fallenness. But he has given himself to us. So from the Father's heart, the Son has come to seek and to save the lost. And the work of the Son is preceded by the work of the Spirit who prepares the way, is accompanied by the work of the Spirit who empowers and guides and leads, and is followed by the work of the Spirit today. All of this in the undivided works of the Holy Trinity. And when God saves us, when God's grace comes to us this way, 
We think about it in ways that Scripture teaches us to think about it. We teach it in ways that Scripture explicitly lays out, here's how you teach what it means. Here's how we understand what it means to be saved. This includes justification. When God saves us in Christ, God freely justifies us. We're justified, the Wesleys will say, again and again, by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith is the con- necessary condition of, salva- of justification, yea, the only necessary condition of justification. But the Wesleys also insist that God does not merely change our legal status and then leave us unchanged. Rather, God is gracious and regenerates and renews and sanctifies us. So the Wesleyan doctrine of sanctification really isn't about the perfection of the believer, despite the bad press it's gotten, sometimes for its own fault. But it's not really about the perfection of the believer. Not really. Not ultimately. The Wesleyan doctrine of sanctification is really and ultimately about the perfection of God. It's about this glorious fact that God wants nothing less for us than complete communion with Him. Sanctification is about this glorious and astounding fact that God wants nothing less for us than that we enter into the life and love shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sanctification then speaks to the truth that God wants far more for us than we ever dare to dream or hope. And He will not stop. He will do whatever it takes to change us and to make us holy. Sanctification is about the stunning truth that God wants more than pardoned criminals who just cower and run from Him. He wants children who know where home is, who run to Him in times of greatest joy, who run to Him in times of deepest distress, crying, Abba. And He wants a spotless bride for His Son. And He is willing to do whatever it takes to change us, whatever it makes to make us a holy people. Sanctification then is ultimately about God's perfection. And perseverance then is not ultimately about us and our efforts and our works and trying to do stuff for God. It's ultimately about God and His persistence. It's about the fact that God will not quit on us. It's about the fact that God will see this thing through. This is the theological vision which begins in the doctrine of the Trinity which proceeds through the doctrine of creation, which is realistic about the doctrine of the fall and about human sin and its effects, but which also has this glorious hope that the same God who created us so that we can know the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit shared also saves us for that very purpose and promises to do nothing less than take us home. It's this vision of the bigness, the grandeur, the greatness and goodness of God his purposes in creation, his purposes in redemption, then that undergird and fuel Wesley understands of salvation. This is why Wesley admonishes his preachers, you have nothing to do but save souls, while also exhorting them to fight slavery, child labor, poverty, and to provide medical care and education. Wesley's sermon, The New Creation, concludes with a statement which I think captures this big picture powerfully. 
he says the most glorious of all will be the change which will then take place on the poor, sinful, miserable children of men. These had fallen in many respects. From a great height, so into a lower depth than any other part of creation. But, but they shall hear a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself shall be their God. Hence will arise an unmixed state of happiness and holiness far superior to what Adam enjoyed in paradise. Wesley says, in how beautiful and affecting a manner is this described by the apostle. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are done away. As there will be no more death, and no more pain or sickness preparatory thereto, as there shall be no more grieving or for or parting with friends, so there will be no more sorrow or crying. Nay, but there will be a greater deliverance than all this, for there will be no more sin. And to crown all, there will be a deep and intimate and uninterrupted union with God, a constant communion with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ through their Spirit a continual enjoyment of the three-one God and all creatures in Him. That, if we can put it in a nutshell, is a small capture of this grand and massive vision that the Wesleys had that fueled their efforts not only in fighting for justice in this world, but also in proclaiming hope for eternity. Now, I'm guessing that many of you will agree with a whole lot of that, at least I hope so, at least hope you'll agree with some of it. But I'm also aware that when people talk who disagree among themselves, when they tend to talk about soteriology and differences in the doctrine of salvation, Often, discussion comes down to several main points. Sometimes these are known as the five points. I'd rather not frame things this way, but since this is the way things often are framed, we'll roll with it, okay? So people often want to know, well, what is a Wesleyan-Arminian view of the five points of Calvinism? Let's be as straightforward as we can. On total depravity and original sin... Hear these words from John Wesley. He says that humans come into the world filled with all manner of evil, wholly fallen, totally corrupted. And he says, admit this, and you so far at least on the road to being a Christian. Deny this, he says, and you are but a heathen still. He explicitly endorses the Anglican articles of religion. So we can ask ourselves, do those promote or allow Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? If the answer is no, then neither does Wesley's own view. Moreover, he explicitly endorses the federalism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, 
Wesley writes his longest and densest treatise that he ever writes, actually defending the Christian doctrine of original sin. He writes this about two years before Jonathan Edwards writes his more famous treatise, which I think is more impressive and better in some ways. But he addresses many of the same issues and and engages in debate with the very same dialogue partners. In fact, with respect to Taylor, he says, No single person since Muhammad has given such a wound to Christianity as Dr. Taylor, who denies the doctrine of original sin. Throughout the 19th century, Methodist theologians will echo these points. Thus, Richard Watson is says it like this. He says, The true Arminian, as fully as the Calvinist, admits the doctrine of total depravity. Thomas Ralston says, We are inclined to evil continually, and will also refer to depravity as total. Moving toward the latter part of the 19th century, Methodist theologian Samuel Wakefield says, We are destitute of anything that is morally good, and naturally inclined to do evil. And even at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, where there are a lot of shifts taking place, many of which in my view are unfortunate, even Alan Curtis will say that the phrase itself is unfortunate, but nonetheless it says something that's true. He says there's a profound sense in which man is, as he comes into the world, totally depraved. John Wesley says, I believe on this point, just as Mr. Calvin does, I do not differ from him a hair's breadth. Maybe we can move on. The U in the traditional tulip formula, total depravity, unconditional election, is often taken to be the doctrine of absolute, uh, either single or double predestination. And here is where, for all the agreement to this point, Arminius and the people who follow him, and Wesley and the people who follow him, as well, by the way, as many, many people who come before either of them, do disagree with this doctrine. In fact, when I say other people before them disagree with it, this is actually a point of emphasis in the works of Arminius. He argues that, and this is particularly against his superlapsarian opponents, but he says, nothing remotely like your view was admitted, decreed, or approved by any of the ecumenical councils of the patristic era, nor are they not only in the ecumenical councils, they're not even in the synodical statements and decisions that, re- that reject Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. In other words, if any place you're going to get your doctrine of predestination showing up, it would be there. But it's not. In fact, the Synod of Orange in 529 um, AD, or Synod of Orange in 529 AD, rejects Pelagianism explicitly and rejects semi-Pelagianism just as explicitly, but doesn't endorse, it does not endorse Augustine's own view of predestination, and explicitly anathematizes anyone who believes that God predestined someone to evil. The standard English translation of this um, goes like this. Not only do we not believe this, but to any who will believe so evil a thing, we say to them with all detestation, anathema. 
Now, fortunately, we're not going to endorse all of Fortunately, I said earlier, I'm not endorsing everything I say, uh, but that is part of the record of this. And so in, the, in his debates, Arminius actually knows the Christian tradition well enough to say to his Reformed opponents, he says, look, your view is the one that's out of bounds. He says there's nothing in the early Christian, in early Christian doctrine that teaches this. That's, that's been synodically or formally or uh, conciliarly approved. Further, he says, it's not even held by our non-reformed contemporaries. And here, with apologies to Dr. Louis' presentation, he cites the Lutherans as being largely on his side. Moreover, he says, with respect to the reformed and Lutheran dialogues, he says, your view doesn't even conform or correspond with the harmony of confessions, which was an effort of Protestants to come together and say things in common. Wesley echoes this. He challenges his opponents to say, find anyone before Augustine who can show me your view of predestination. He says, indeed, the whole English church to this day is a Eastern church to this day is opposed to the doctrine, as is, he says, much of our own tradition, which was, of course, Anglicanism. But that's not really the most important things. Um, the considerations of the tradition are important, but not nearly the most important. The doctrine of God is much more central and much more important in these discussions. And so Arminius, for instance, will argue that the views of his opponents are repugnant to divine wisdom, justice, and goodness. He is absolutely convinced, and this comes from the fact that he's a classical theist in the Thomas tradition who has a very classical doctrine of God. God is the highest good, he says, the summum bonum. He couldn't be anything else. What is he, partly bad? He's not only good, he's completely good, necessarily good, essentially good, and it's, Arminius actually thinks it's blasphemous to think anything otherwise. Not only to think that God is evil, he thinks it's blasphemous to think that God possibly could be evil. So he thinks it's straightforward and obvious that God is the highest good or greatest good. He says, accordingly, what God does in the world in creation and redemption, divine action then, is an expression of goodness. What else could it be? But he says to think of God as otherwise is to think of him as the highest evil, the summum malum. To think of him as a summum malum is nothing short of blasphemy. And then he says, consider this, if humans are created where God intends their ultimate damnation rather than communion with God as the final end, then God indeed has willed evil to them. And this is where Arminius will get polemical, and he'll also get very theological, and he'll say, come God and vindicate your glory. Similarly with respect to the doctrine of creation. As we've seen, given Arminius' classical doctrine of God and doctrine of divine simplicity, God is not mixed between good and evil or partly one or the other. God is the highest good, and necessarily so. And creation then is for the communication of good. But he says, on the view of my opponents, he says, creation can't be for the communication of good. It's a preparation for the greatest evil. Even worse, it's according to the will and the intention of the Creator. Arminius thinks that this damages anthropology. Even more um, damningly, he thinks, it really goes after and cuts against the grain of the doctrine of sin. What is sin? 
It is, of course, violation of God's law. But God's law is itself not arbitrary. God's law is itself grounded in God's will, which itself is always consistent with God's being in nature. So to sin is to go against God. Of course, he's just tapping into centuries and centuries of scholastic tradition on this, whereby sin is always understood ultimately as against God. Contra Deum or contrary to God. And Arminius says, but wait a second. If people are created by God for the ultimate purpose of damnation, or at least for the final purpose of damnation, if there's another ultimacy sense in glorifying God, we can talk about that. But he says, if their final end, if they're created by God as a final end for their damnation, God has not willed good to them. Moreover, they can hardly ever sin, right? This is his point. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm asking you to understand it. His worry is that this undercuts the, the most basic sense we have of the, what sin is. It's what God doesn't want done. And yet, if God has decreed that these people will sin and sin just as they do and sin just as they do all the way to the grave and sin just as they do all the way to the grave and then all the way to eternity, then they are actually doing just what God's decree has made inevitable for them to do. And he says, this turns the doctrine of sin upside down. Because no longer are these people sinning, they actually can't. Instead, he says, we begin to wonder where sin actually comes from. And I'll leave you to do what Arminius doesn't leave his people to do, that is, reflect on that. Arminius also thinks that predestination inverts the gospel. And Wesley agrees with this, and then Wesley takes it to a practical level. And Wesley is immensely concerned that the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news, is besmirched or broken by the view of predestination that he opposes. Now, sometimes it's said that Calvinists believe in predestination and everybody else believes in free will. But it isn't an issue of predestination versus free will. Many Calvinists as well will affirm freedom in some sense. And sometimes it's a very technical, sophisticated sense. At the same time, Wesleyans also believe, and Arminians also believe historically in doctrine of predestination. What do they make of election and predestination? Well, they say that in biblical theology, the line is typically that election, election is primarily corporate and missional. This you can see all the way from, say, the first instance of election we see in Scripture, or at least clear instance of election in Scripture, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where there are actually three groups of people in view. There is Abram and his descendants, who are the elect. But there isn't just one other group called the non-elect. There are actually two other types or groups of people mentioned. There are those who are elect, those who will bless and then be blessed, and those who will reject and curse and then be cursed. This flows through Israel's own history. Israel chosen and called as the people through whom God will reveal himself and by whom he will represent himself to the world. Israel is thus the elect people called to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, etc. 
Uh, if we could spend the entire three-hour time uh, on that, and I actually would be happy to do that, but it's not what it has us to do. It's, I think it's a beautiful doctrine. The doctrine of election is a beautiful doctrine as it unfolds. The doctrine of election as I see it um, is, is a beautiful and attractive, powerful doctrine about God's own efforts to win back the lost. And this is a core sort of classic Wesleyan teaching. It's also, by the way, one that's found new life in the works of biblical theologians such as Christopher J.H. Wright and others in recent years. This theme, which runs throughout Scripture. Now, this isn't to deny that the, that the predestination of individuals may sometimes be in view in the Bible. Indeed. But the standard Wesleyan-Arminian line on this is, goes like this. When predestination of individuals is in view... The most straightforward biblical sense we can make here is that predestination seems to be according to the foreknowledge of God. And they'll point to texts such as Romans 8.29, 1 Peter 1.2, and others. Yes, we are aware of people who push back on the meaning of prognosco and the meaning of knowledge and this, the meaning of foreknowledge. And yes, we are aware of those things and no, we're generally uh, not too convinced by them. Turning our attention, if we can, to the doctrine of atonement and to the L in the tulip, that is limited atonement. Straightforwardly, we all know this, there are different sets of texts that are often appealed to by proponents of of both unlimited or universal atonement and proponents of definite limited uh, atonement. There are biblical texts which talk about the world, God's, both God's desire for all to be saved, but also texts which, at least on the face of them, seem to suggest that Christ really did die for the world. So there are world texts, there are all texts, and then there are examples of people who really seem to be there for whom atonement was made, and yet who are not saved. There are, on the other hand, what are known as the exclusive texts or the limiting text, and you're familiar with these. Um, he came to save his people from their sins, his sheep, his church, etc. And here's where Wesleyans will often ask these sorts of questions. They'll first note that to say that Christ died for me certainly doesn't mean Christ died for me and only me. I mean, Paul actually says that in one place, that Christ died for me, but no one takes him to mean, surely, I hope no one takes him to mean, uh, Christ died for him and only him. That would be really limited atonement, and we would want to have a conference on that kind of stuff. <laughs> so the, the fact that I say Christ died for me, in and of itself, neither explicitly states, nor does it entail, that Christ died for me and only me. Similarly with statements of us, or his people. The fact that Christ died for his people... It's true. It's biblically straightforward, and it's gloriously, beautifully true. But Wesleyans often point out that doesn't mean that he didn't die for others. So then they ask, is there any text that says you and you only or us and us only? And if there is such a text, we want to know where that one is. They also will ask, are there any texts which directly imply you and you only, or us and us only. 
And I think that's where the conversations are. Are there any texts which actually directly imply that? But on this point, Wesleyan Arminians have typically taken, taken it to be the case that the biblical high ground is clearly on their side. Uh, they don't always think that about predestination. I mean, I'd say just to step out of the descriptive role of Wesleyan Arminian theology in general to my own perspective, I certainly see why people are attracted. I mean, how could you not see how people are attracted and, and com- convinced by the Reformed doctrine of predestination? Because on certain readings of some key text of Scripture, for instance, Romans 9, on some readings of key text of Scripture, it's really obvious. And so I think it's important for those of us on either side of this um, predestination and atonement debate to be able to understand there are really, on the face of them, really important convincing reasons why people would hold the other view. And I think a lot of Western Arminians say that about predestination. For my own money, on some readings of Romans 9, it's really obvious that you have not probably only infralapsarian, but superlapsarian views going on. At least not only single predestination to heaven, but double predestination to heaven and hell. But the shoe is rather on the other foot, most of us think. Now let me say, we're not convinced by that reading of Romans 9, but it's plausible reading of Romans 9. And if that reading is the right reading, then it looks like that doctrine of predestination indeed is true. But we do think the shoe is rather on the foot on the other foot with atonement doctrine. Where the prima facie case to be made certainly seems to be that Christ died for everyone, actually, since that is actually explicitly stated. It doesn't mean we don't talk about how to interpret it, but I'm just saying, on the face of it, it certainly looks like Christ died for everyone when we read Christ died for everyone. Wesleyan Arminians will also often appeal to the Christian tradition on this. And so to quote a Presbyterian theologian, Walter Elwell, he says, The historic view of the church, being held by the vast majority of theologians, reformers, evangelists, and fathers, he says, with the possible exception of Augustine, is universal atonement. Among the reformers, the doctors found Luther, Melanchthon, Bullinger, Latimer, Cranmer, Coverdale, and many others. Among the church fathers, it seems to be clearly found in Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement, Origen, Athanasius, Cyril, Basil, Ambrose, Cappadocians, and others. The familiar distinction, or at least more recently familiar distinction, between the um, all without exception, all without distinction, actually shows up in the 5th century with Prosper of Aquitaine, so far as we can tell. And here he says that God actually made no distinction with anyone because of his social state. So he says the gospel is for all people without exception because Christ died for all people without exception so that the gospel could be preached to all people without distinction. John of Damascus um, says that anyone who perishes does, does so only after God has done all that was possible to save him. Because God's original wish was that all should be saved and should come into his kingdom. Um, Lutheran theologians, largely and broadly, so far as I can tell, reject doctrine of limited or definite atonement in favor of 
the clear biblical witness. But I'll let Dr. Louie talk about that. Let me summarize uh, uh, this in the words of a friend of mine who's a Reformed theologian, a very fine historian, a good scholar named Randy Blacketer, who says that the doctrine of limited atonement, he says in the history of the church, is a, quote, minority position and frequently ambiguous. And also admits that it actually remains a subject of much controversy even after the Reformation. Let me mention one more theological worry with the doctrine of atonement, and then we'll move on to, uh, to, con- to put, wrap this thing up and conclude. The theological worry is about the well-meant offer of salvation. And let me be really clear, this is not a worry about missions. This is not a worry about evangelism. This is not a worry about human proclamation of the gospel from one to another. This is a deeper worry. It's a lot bigger one. It's a worry about God. So if the doctrine of limited atonement is true, the question then is, does God call sinners to turn from their sins and believe in something that was never intended for them or truly available to them? And then does he judge them for that? So Arminius says, on this view, God calls the reprobate to believe in what? In a gospel never intended for them or available to them? He says this imputes hypocrisy to God. Because on this view, God requires them to have faith in Christ, whom, however, he has not set forth as a savior to them. And so he says people are commanded to believe the gospel. But if if God wills that Christ should not be to their advantage, if God is not willing to grant remission of sins, then these people are commanded to believe a lie. And then because they do not believe the lie, they are the more heavily punished. On perseverance of the saints, Arminius explicitly acknowledges that there is a possibility that true believers may fall away. And he doesn't publicly deny that some have done so in actuality, but nor does he confirm it. I will say that he's pastorally concerned with two major problems. One is carelessness, and the other is desperation. Wesley is similar. As a pastorally oriented theologian and evangelist, he says he's sensible that either side of this question is attended with great difficulties. But he does, at the end of the day, take the warning passages, especially of Hebrews, to teach that genuine apostasy is possible. And yet he insists that Christians have every right, or at least every good ground, to have assurance of salvation and a blessed hope. Now, in conclusion, let me mention a couple of caricatures to be avoided. And here I begin with an observation. And one is that for any caricature we could make, like any cartoonish exaggeration of a theology, there are probably living, walking, breathing, preaching embodiments of that. <laughs> and so sometimes I, as a, you know, as a Wesleyan theologian, I'm asked this question, and people are really respectful, they're, they're real sweet about it, but they kind of say, do you, do you think that, you know, sometimes, like, lay people in your kind of churches, do they actually sometimes kind of tend towards semi-Pelagianism? 
And my answer is typically, no. They pretty much endorse it and embrace it. <laughs> I don't mean everybody, of course. I don't mean that. I mean, I, I was, hey, I, I'm, seriously, I was, I was discipled and nurtured in the faith by people who didn't want any credit for their salvation and, and wanted to trust God entirely for their salvation and wanted to be filled by God's Spirit and used by God in the world. I'm just grateful for them. But yes, there are, for every caricature we could come up with, let me just say there are living, walking, breathing, preaching embodiments of it. But here's a, a suggestion. The suggestion is that we judge a theological position not by its worst proponents or their arguments, but by its best and preferably by their confessional documents. you hear that? Preferably by the actual statements of faith. There's this game that we can play. It's an easy game to play. In our context, it's usually Calvinist. So they can point to some problematic statements from non-Calvinists, Lutherans or, or Wesleyans or others, usually Wesleyans. They can point to problematic statements like, this is so unclear, this is so confused, this, this distorts the gospel. Wesleyans can play the same game. We can just as easily point to problematic and heterodox, and I'll just say it, heretical statements from theologians in the broadly Reformed tradition. There are. Unitarianism, at least in America, largely grew out of Reformed theology. It's not the fault of Reformed theology. I'm just saying we can play that game. But it's not a healthy game to play. It's not edifying to us. It doesn't build up the saints. It doesn't encourage the, the preaching of the gospel. It's just not healthy for us. Calvinists will object, and I think they'll rightly object, to being lumped in with their most extreme versions and then judged accordingly. And Wesleyans and other Arminians are going to feel the same way. So let me lastly mention a few specifics. There are others, I'm sure, but these are probably the cliches I have found most standard and most common. Here's one. Arminianism is really Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. You know, Methodist Article 8, this is of the Articles of Religion, it's 25 abridged from the 39 English. Okay, so in the, after the American Revolution, the establishment of American Methodism, you get 25 articles of religion, which um, summarize in large the 39. Some get cut out as irrelevant or whatever. Um, others are just excised and removed completely. Still others are summarized and put together. That's how you get from 39 to 25. But some of them come through unchanged, right? They just don't change at all. Here's one. We cannot, a man cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works without the grace of God preventing or enabling us. Wesley himself says, I'm not a hair's breadth from Calvinism on the doctrine of sin. Here's another one. Wesleyans teach works righteousness or, or don't believe in justification or think we justify ourselves or save ourselves. And I just, if, if you're tempted by this, or around people who are tempted by this cliche, just spend a little bit of time and read Wesley's sermons on justification by faith, or salvation by faith, or the Lord our righteousness. Or consider 
how the Methodist Articles of Religion state this. We are accounted righteous before God, not only for the merit... Sorry, that would be a problem. (laughs) Freudian slow. Okay, now it's going to go, right? (laughs) At least I caught it before it went on this thing, right? We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works. Therefore, that we are justified by faith is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. As John Wesley himself says that I think on justification just as Mr. Calvin does, in this respect I do not differ from him a hair's breadth. He says, God justifies the believer for the sake of Christ's righteousness and not for any righteousness of his own. And Charles Wesley puts it even better. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim through him crown my own. Here's a third cliche. Arminians make an idol of free will. Well, here's Arminius. I ascribe to God's grace the origin, the continuance, and the fulfillment of all good, even so far as the regenerate person himself, without this prevening and stimulating, following and cooperating grace, can neither think, will, or do good, nor also resist any evil temptation. Wesley exhorts his, his Methodist, he says, to come, he says, to the very edge of Calvinism in these ways. In ascribing all good to the free grace of God and denying all natural free will and all power antecedent to grace and in excluding all merit from us. Here's a final cliche. Arminianism doesn't care about the glory of God or let's go more strongly, Arminianism denies the glory of God. People say that, I wish the people who say this would spend a little bit of time reading Arminius' Declaration of Sentiments. Because the same concern to uphold and exult in the glory of God, the same concern to manifest and magnify the glory of God, is the very same concern that drives Arminius to reject the, the views of his Reformed opponents. It's because he cares about God's glory and it's because he thinks that their view besmirches God's glory that he's so exercised to say what he says. It's not that he doesn't care about God's glory or somehow wants to steal it or rob it or de-God God or something like that. It's because he cares about God's glory that he says, come and vindicate your glory when people are saying things about you that implicate you in doing evil. In conclusion... Let me suggest that we work, maybe harder than we have in the past, 
on keeping things in proper perspective. And affirm together wholeheartedly, unreservedly, the great things of the gospel. And together, understand that there are properly pious motivations on various sides. I've come to believe more firmly than I ever have before that many Reformed folk, both lay Christians who call themselves Calvinists and Reformed theologians, they hold their views with such deep conviction. They, they're, they're convinced and they hold to these views with such passion for a very proper deeply pious motivation. It's this. They want to see that God is glorified and thus they want to make sure that they aren't taking any credit for their salvation and that nobody thinks they're taking credit for the salvation and that nobody possibly could think they're taking credit for their salvation. At the same time, I think it's also important to see that many Wesleyans and other Arminians hold to their beliefs with such deep conviction and such passion for a very different set, but also a very deeply proper and pious set of motivations. It's this. They want to avoid anything that would besmirch God's glory. They want to make really sure that they aren't saying anything that implicates God as the author of evil. To put it succinctly, Calvinists often want to make sure that humans don't take any credit for doing the good that God does. Wesleyans and other Arminians want to make sure that God doesn't get blamed for doing any of the evil that humans do. And I think both of those are pious motivations. It's one of the reasons why we need each other. And I need those who disagree with me. I need them in my life. I need them to check me. I need them to correct me. I also need them to pray with me and affirm me and encourage me and love me. Wesley doesn't always take his own advice. But he does say some good things in these regards. He says, it's both sin and folly. He's talking now, not to the Calvinist. He's talking to his Methodist preachers. And he says, it's, both, it's just foolish, but it's also sinful to refer to the, to use the term Calvinist or the label Calvinist as a term of reproach. And then he asks this question. Well, he faces this question, which often comes to him. Who is a Methodist, according to your account? I answer, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him, who loves the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart, the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth I desire 
beside thee, my God and my all. From real Christians, he says, of whatsoever denomination they be, we do not wish to be distinguished at all. Not from any who sincerely follow after what they know they have not yet attained. No. Whosoever doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that we be in no wise divided among ourselves. Is thy heart right? as my heart is with thine? I ask no further question. If it be, give me thy hand. For opinions or terms, let us not destroy the work of God. Dost thou love and serve God? It's enough. I give thee the right hand of fellowship. Thanks, Greg, and thank you all.